entire scripture. It can be found on the inside of the bulletin. And that is on page 4, Romans 8, 18 through 25. Romans 8, 18 through 25. Here are the words from the Apostle Paul to the Church of Rome. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if you have been following the world events of the week. Uh, it's a mix of the good, the bad, and the ugly. There were some tragedies that occurred. I don't know if you followed this uh, duck boat incident uh, uh, in Missouri, where a storm came up and 17 people in the boat capsized. 17 people were killed, nine from one family. Uh, think of the uh, immense amount of sorrow and pain for those folks. Uh, that was a very, very sad one. I don't know, I think it might have been even yesterday that, that there was a uh, standoff at a Trader Joe's in Los Angeles. Forty people taken hostage by a deranged man. One was killed. Made me think of the Trader Joe's that is right up the road that we go in, what those people experienced and feared. It doesn't take long, if you're looking for it, to find bad news in the world, things that have gone wrong. Of course, this week there was the standard uh, you know, dose of hatred and bitterness between political parties as, uh, as the, the shenanigans in Congress continue on. It seems, if you look for it, you can find it pretty easily, but there's a lot of pain and suffering and brokenness in the world. It's easy to look outside of that and to shake your head, but I have to acknowledge the truth that when I look in the mirror, I see brokenness looking back at me sometimes. I know that my body is breaking down. I confess to you, I am the heaviest that I've ever been my entire life. I don't know that if I look like much of a portly gentleman, I have somewhat of a slight frame, but it's true. This is the man who at one time ran the Marine Corps Marathon without training just to see if he could do it. I now don't even think I could run to the 7-Eleven uh, if I wanted to. My body is breaking down. I wake up, my arm hurts from the break. My toe hurts. I'm getting older, my body is breaking down. But I also, <laughs> yes, I get thank you, thank you. But I confess that when I look in the mirror of my soul, there are things that I do not see that I like as well. There's times when I know what the right thing is to do, and I want to do it, and yet I don't. The things that I don't want to do that I do. I know 
when there's a phone call that I should make, when there's something that I should do that is the right thing to do, the way that I speak to my wife, my kids, myself. And yet all too often I find myself deviating to the left instead of to the right. I would think that by now, being a Christian since age 18, I would have mastered such things. But in some ways, I feel like I'm going backwards more than I'm going forwards. That I'm more wicked and more depraved as the older I get. There's a brokenness in me. The scripture talks about that, doesn't it? That there's a groaning in all of us who love the Lord. There's a groaning for redemption. A groaning for things to be made right in the world, a groaning for things to be right, made right in my heart and in myself, a longing for that which is promised to come yet seems so far away. And sometimes in the darkness, maybe we ask ourselves, will it ever come? I'm thankful for the word and I'm thankful for the apostle Paul, for he helps us to regain our perspective, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That redemption is not a question of if, it's a question of when. When all will be made right, when I will be made right, when I will no longer have to stare in the mirror and look back at someone who disappoints me, but rather to see myself as I truly was meant to be, like Christ. And so we're going to look at this passage, but because of the gospel, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of the finished work of Christ, we too are his work, who are his work, shall also be finished in due time. So we must hold on to hope. I want to look at two particular issues. Number one, the pain of the present. What is the pain that we feel now, and why do we feel it, and what are we to do about it? Number two, I want to look at the hope of the future, the hope of what is to come, the hope that spurs us on to continue in the midst of disappointment and depravity and brokenness. So let's look at number one, the reality of the present. Paul begins by saying, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. We need a little background because what sufferings is Paul talking about and what glory is there to be revealed? Several weeks ago, I preached on the passage before. And in Romans 8, 16 and 17, the two verses before that, this one, Paul says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So Paul is saying that we are children of God, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. What is he talking about? Well, really there are two options. The first one we often think about is persecution. Paul's saying, provided that we are persecuted as Jesus was persecuted, we suffer with him, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. The suffering that Paul is talking about here is the suffering of denial of oneself. Remember, it was Jesus long before the cross ever came up that his disciples knew that he was going to be crucified who said, 
to anyone, to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Paul gave, uh, Jesus gave an illustration of suffering as self-denial to following Jesus Christ. See, there's an inherent suffering that is part and parcel with the decision to follow Jesus Christ. To take up one's cross back then, the Romans not only crucified you, but they made you carry their cross, carry your cross throughout the streets to go and be crucified. And the reason they did that was because they wanted the populace of the city to know that this person is under the authority of the Roman government. The cross represented the authority of the Roman government and its ability to do whatever it wanted to people who were lawbreakers. But Jesus is saying to voluntarily pick up the cross of the authority of Jesus Christ. In other words, to deny yourself. It was C.S. Lewis to say, said when God talks about people losing themselves, what he really means is abandoning the clamor of their self-will. Bonhoeffer said it even clearer, when God calls a man, he bids him to come and die. This was the path of Jesus Christ when he lived on this earth, wasn't it? Hebrews 5, 7 puts it this way, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. We don't think about Jesus as much, do we, being buffeted by this world, by its temptations, being assailed, and crying out to God every minute, every moment, not my will, but yours be done. With loud cries and petitions, this was the path of Jesus. Jesus suffered. And of course it would be the path that we would walk into, wouldn't it? And so all this suffering. Paul goes cosmic here in verse 19, is talking about the fact that creation itself suffers. Notice that he says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's almost personified. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That creation actually suffers. It's been subjected to futility. We were out uh, this past uh, two weeks, we were on vacation, and we got to spend time rafting the Colorado River, the Grand Canyon. I don't know if there's a more unbelievable, beautiful sight than being able to see God's majestic creation from the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And amidst all of that beauty, what God is saying is that creation is actually not coming forth, that creation is subjected to futility, that it doesn't even work the way it's supposed to, that we're not even seeing it in its fullness. And who is it that has subjected it to futility? God himself. Why? In order that the ultimate beauty and the ultimate freedom of what it looks like 
where the children of God would be manifest in the end times. And so creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. This storm that came up on this lake in Missouri, it's not supposed to be there before the fall. That's part of the futility of creation. The flash floods and the droughts and the hurricanes and the death and destruction and the pestilence and all those things. They're symptoms of a creation that is groaning to be set free. That mirrors us. Paul says, it continues on in verse 23, that not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of the Son, the redemption of our bodies. Why is this groaning going on? Because it's like we're being torn apart. That in our hearts of hearts, we know God, we've experienced Him, that we desire Him, that we want Him. And yet our bodies refuse Him. They fight Him. There's this inner toil in the Christian's life. See, a non-Christian has it a lot better in some ways than a Christian. Their hearts desire a certain thing and their bodies come in line. To, to, so there's a wholeness. But not us. No, there's a brokenness to ourselves. We have the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts, and yet there's a wickedness to our life. Paul admonishes us in Philippians 2, 3, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to consider others better than yourselves. So do you? Do I? The truth of the matter is, more often than not, I don't. I choose myself over others. I choose my comfort over other people. I choose me over God. More often than not. I, I fear if I was to calculate up the percentage of what it would be for every time I choose God, for every time I choose myself, what that would be. Can I actually love Jesus Christ? If I dwell on that number, I will fall to despair. But if I understand reality, the truth of the matter is that I'm groaning, waiting for my adoption as sons, the redemption of my bodies. But this is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. That there's not, there's not something wrong with you in the sense that you're different than a Christian when you find yourself battling against going in the direction that you know that is wrong. But Christianity is a battle. And so I'm left with myself. My faith says belief, and my body says don't waste your time. You know, it's interesting. I, I would have said I used to never doubt. I think I doubt more than I have doubted before in my entire life. How can that be? I know more of God than I ever have. What's going on with that? I don't know. Why is it that we always respond, hey, how are you doing? Pretty good. With that, why don't we respond something, you know, things really suck right now? Because <laughs> this is how we feel, at least I do sometimes. <laughs> right? It's a reality. So who will rescue me from this body of death? 
I realized the truth that without Jesus, I'm not going to make it. Without him pulling me along, without him getting me to the finish line, I'm not going to make it. When I was young, I thought one day in this Christian thing, it's all going to come together. And all the cylinders are going to line up. And I'm going to look in the mirror, and I'm going to be a sight to behold, dazzling in my holiness. <laughs> Still waiting. <laughs> Still waiting. It was, I don't know if you've read the book, The Screwtape Letters. But there's a passage in there where the devils are talking to each other. And I really like this passage. Humans rarely pray for the thing God wants them to pray for. They simply want enough grace to see them through some moment or time of trouble. They conjure up a vision of the future they want and appeal for that outcome. They persist in wrapping their anxious hands around life's steering wheel as if it's going to work this time if only they clutch it more tightly. The most difficult prayer for us to voice is, not my will, but thine be done. Our conversations with God regularly leapfrog over our intellectual resolve not to ask for stuff and land squarely on the bargaining and pleading table. The best we seem to be able to do is arrive at a compromise between what we know to be right intellectually and the howl of protest that lies within us. Are you guys excited at the happy sermon that I'm preaching right now? <laughs> this is great, isn't it? I guess the point I'm trying to make with this first point is this. Do you groan? Do you long for heaven? Or are you satisfied here? The person I'm most afraid for here is the one who is satisfied with themselves. Because the reality is we are broken. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, but our bodies are not redeemed. That we have not come into the full inheritance of our sonship, and we will not until his coming. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So what do you long for? I long for a new job. I long for more friends. I long for a cooler car. Or do you long for redemption? Do you long to be made whole? Do you long to live in line with the love that Christ gave for you? If your Christianity doesn't involve groaning and pain and longing, you're not being honest with yourself. You cannot voice longing or complaint in your prayers to God and with one another. You aren't really experiencing what it means to be a Christian in this world and the reality of the present. Now, I could stop there, but there's a second point. There's the reality of the present, but there's the hope of the future. How are we to survive in the midst of our brokenness? and of our continual disappointment of ourselves and who we are meant to be? The answer is hope. See, Christianity lies at the nexus between life and death. Paul says, for I consider in verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time, and they are real. The sufferings are real, they're not meant to be thrown away. 
or minimized, but they are not worth in comparison with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, it's, it's the comparison of what is to come. It has been my experience that you can go through just about anything if you know what is to come at the end. And Paul is saying that this suffering and this brokenness in my life and this sadness and disappointment that all too often I feel <coughs> is not even worth comparing with the fact that I am going to experience the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's not just the title we're going to get, you see. It's the transformation. In the end, the word says that we will be like Jesus. We will see him as it is, as he is. And then we discover that this has been creation's plan all along. But this is not some blip. That the issues and problems that I experience in the world is going through is not just something that is a byproduct, but part of what God has been doing from the beginning anyways. For the creation, notice in verse 20, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free. See, it's God that has started this whole thing from the beginning. It's God that's brought, allowed death to come into the world so that the end product would be life. That all of history, yes, in fact, is his story of God creating children out of enemies. See, I can get stuck in the present, and I all too often do. When I look at the circumstances and the reality, I forget that this is God's work, and God is doing something. And that we're right on schedule according to his calendar. I like the way verse 22 puts it. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pain until now. Now that's not what it says, does it? It says it has, we have been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now that's a different kind of pain, isn't it? Did I hear some amens from the women? <laughs> I've got to sit in and have a ringside seat for three births. And to be sure, there is pain. And there's desperate pain sometimes. And there is uncertain periods of pain sometimes. But what is at the end of it, which we all know, which we cheer for and strive for, and which the doctors lean us to, is the hope of the pain and that will dissipate when that cry breaks forth into the operating room. The pain of childbirth. God is birthing something in you. He's birthing something in us together. He's birthing something in creation. And it's coming slowly, inexorably, painfully. But it's coming. And when I focus my eyes on that which is to come, it gives me strength to endure that which is now. But we ourselves, verse 23, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons. There is a guarantee in you and me, Christian, if you do love Jesus to follow him. A seal that has been placed upon your heart, the seal of the Holy Spirit. 
that has awoken us to the reality of God's love and that will not let us go. I think that's how I know I'm a Christian. Even though I'm a miserably disobedient Christian, I can't seem to get away from him. He draws me back. He won't let me go. He doesn't disown me. He holds on to me. So this article from Psychology Today, which I read all the time, and it's from uh, Archer is his last name. Dale Archer is a psychologist, excuse me, psychiatrist. He says, if I could find a way to package and dispense hope, I would have a pill more powerful than any on the market. Hope is often the only thing between man and the abyss. As long as a patient, individual, or victim has hope, they can recover from anything and everything. However, if they lose hope, unless you can help them get it back, all is lost. One thing I can tell you is that hope is an emotion that springs from the heart, not the brain. Hope lays dormant until its amazing strength is beckoned, supplying a sheer belief that you will overcome, that you will persevere, that you will endure anything and everything that comes your way. That is the one place where the article skews. Because the reality is I will not overcome in myself. I will not endure in myself. I will fall away in myself. But what Paul is saying and what Christ is saying from the scriptures to us is that we have a living hope. One who is risen from the grave. One who is in us. Who always perseveres. Who never gives up. Who always wins. And in him, we can persevere. In him, we can have hope. In him, we can endure. And in him, we will have the victory we focus on ourselves, we will surely fail. Our eyes need to be fixed on Jesus Christ, our champion of faith, who is in our present and who lies in our future. He is the hope in which we are saved. And so, my friends, wherever you are, in the valley or in the mountain, on the top of the mountain right now, there is a hope in which we were saved, verse 24. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. All I can point you to is Jesus Christ. I have no pill. I have no panacea. I have no pep talk. But we do have him. So wait for him. He may be closer to you than your own hand right now. Or he may feel further away than the furthest place on the earth. But hope for him. Look to his faithfulness. Look to the fact that the grave is empty. That Jesus Christ is the first fruits and wait for him with patience. We are all subject to death and deterioration. But because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we too are his work that shall ultimately be finished. It's in this hope that I take my stand. And it's in this hope that I hope you too will stand with me. Let's pray.
Oh Lord, if you get the record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. And therefore we fear you in the right sense for all. You are our hope. You are who we pitch our hopes to. Left to ourselves, we will all fall away. But your love and your blood are strong enough to bring us from the grave to the tomb. And so we endure this present pain, waiting for future glory. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.